Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, read from the Common English Bible. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. After he entered the Pharisee's home, he took his place at the table. Meanwhile, a woman from the city, a sinner, discovered that Jesus was dining in the Pharisee's house. She brought perfumed oil in a vase made of alabaster. Standing behind him at his feet and crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the oil on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw what was happening, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. He would know that she's a sinner. Jesus replied, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, speak, he said. A certain lender had two debtors. One owed enough money to pay 500 people for a day's work. The other owed enough money for 50. When they couldn't pay, the lender forgave the debts of both of them. Which of them loved him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the largest debt canceled. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? When I entered your home, you did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since she came in, since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has poured perfumed oil on my feet. This is why I tell you that her many sins have been forgiven. So she has shown great love. The one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other table guests began to say among themselves, who is this person that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. My name is Megan. I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. We just heard a story read that Jesus lived, and I'd like to follow that up with just a short story that Jesus tells a little bit later in his ministry. From Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and who looked on everyone else with disgust. He said, Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself with these words. God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else, the crooks, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I receive. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to look toward heaven. Rather, he struck his chest and said, God, show me mercy, a sinner. I tell you that this person went to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. Let's pray together. God, breathe in your word, breathe in your story, the story of your son by the power of your spirit. Make this story live again for us so that we can live for you. Amen. So here's the scene. Uh, Jesus is at a dinner party, 
And the guest list at the dinner party is basically a who's who of local church megachurch pastors. Like every, every Christian author, every large church pastor is there. And as is the banqueting custom of the day, in the center of the room, you would have this large kind of woven mat spread on the floor, and there are platters of food that are spread across this woven mat, and all of the important guests are reclining on the floor around the mat. They've all got a nice pillow. You put your left elbow on the pillow, you lean on your side with your feet out behind you, and you eat with your right hand. You might want to try that at home today. So all of these megachurch pastors, they're popping olives in their mouth, they're talking, there are all these conversations going, there are servers that are moving around the mat, refilling the wine. And on top of all that, the gates have been left open outside so that local community members and any random person that's passing by that wants to observe the important people talking and listen to the evening's conversation can just wander in the gate and come stand at the edges of the rooms and listen to what's happening. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of bodies packed in the small space. There's a lot of movement. And with all of this going on, nobody has even noticed or attended a woman who's standing alone against one wall with a jar in her hands. An expensive jar. A jar that's filled with basically a small fortune in priceless perfume. There's a custom in this kind of hot, dry climate that when you have a guest over to your house, one of the gestures of courtesy you can make, um, kind of like the, I don't know, the, the mints in the bathroom, right? The nice thing you can do is to give the person who walks in a little bit of olive oil to put on their head to soothe their skin that's cracking from the sun. So this woman has come specifically tonight because she's heard that Jesus is going to be here. And she has brought oil for him because she wants him to experience oil like a king would experience. So she's standing against the wall and she's clutching this jar of perfume. But now that she's here, she's come for this purpose and she sees Jesus lying there like just a few feet in front of her. And she's suddenly overcome with emotion from seeing him. And she just starts to cry, and the tears are running hotter and faster, and all of a sudden, to her horror, she looks down, and she sees that her tears are actually leaving muddy tracks on Jesus' feet. And she looks around to see if there's some kind of, like, rag or water or something so she can clean him off, but she doesn't see anything, and she doesn't know what to do. And then she, she reaches her head up and kind of grabs onto this long head covering that women would wear to cover their hair, and she hesitates for a second, and then she just tugs. And the head covering comes off, and all her hair comes tumbling down around her shoulders. Now, that might not seem a big deal to you in 2022, Um, But in this culture, any decent woman would keep her hair covered every place except when alone with her husband. So what this woman has just done is the ancient shock equivalent of unbuttoning your blouse in front of Billy Graham. I mean, that might not even get you to what this is, right? So she kneels down behind Jesus and she's got this cloth from her hair in her hands and she looks at him for a second and then she tosses the cloth aside and she bends down over her knees as low as she can get and she starts wiping up and down Jesus' filthy, muddy feet with the hair on her head. 
And the thing is, once she starts touching him, it, it just totally gets away from her. Like, as soon as she starts touching him, she can't stop. And she's rubbing his hair, and then she starts kissing his feet. The verb is repeated. She's kissing and kissing and kissing over and over again. She's rubbing and kissing, and she sees that jar of oil that she brought for his head. And never mind the head, she's got the feet now, so she cracks the, the neck off the jar and just pours the whole thing all over his feet and keeps kissing and rubbing. Now, clearly Jesus is aware of what's going on since his feet first started getting wet. Right? He's been lying there silently allowing the scene to unfold. But remember, the room is full of people. There's a lot going on. Nobody notices that this is happening until the host, who's lying next to Jesus, suddenly gets a nose full of really expensive perfume and starts looking around wondering where it's coming from. And who should he see standing directly behind his honored guest but a woman that he instantly recognizes? The local prostitute who spends every day right along the main street in town. Her hair is undressed. She's caressing his guest and she's kissing him, kissing his feet over and over again in front of every religious leader in the community. This host is appalled. I mean, he invited Jesus here tonight to check him out. He heard of this guy named Jesus. He heard he was a prophet who had some kind of special connection with God. And he thought he might as well see if that were actually true. But it turns out now he has his answer. Because a prophet would know who this woman was to begin with. And not just a prophet, but any decent man at all would not let any woman be doing this to him in public. So this host's mind is just racing. Like He's trying to figure out what he's going to do. And that's the moment Jesus suddenly speaks. And Jesus says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Jesus proceeds to offer a riddle. This was a popular activity at elite dinner parties in the ancient world to offer and answer riddles. And Jesus says to him, listen to this one, Simon. There once was a lender who had two people who owed him money. One person owed him a year and a half of wages, and one person owed him two months of wages. Neither one could pay, so he forgave the debts of both. Which person would love that lender more? And Simon visibly hesitates because the answer is too easy. And when the answer to a riddle seems too easy, you always figure it's a trap of some kind. But he can't figure out where the trap is coming from, so he finally says to Jesus, well, I suppose it's the one with the bigger debt. Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly, which is always how you know you're in trouble with Jesus. And then Jesus turns around and he looks at the woman behind him for the first time, looks at her there with her tear-stained face and her muddy hair, and he says, Simon, do you see this woman? When I came into your house tonight, you didn't even offer me a rag or a basin to wash my own feet. She just washed my feet with her tears and her hair. Simon, when I came in your house tonight, you didn't give me a casual kiss on the cheek as a greeting. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet for the last 20 minutes. 
Simon, you didn't offer me a little bit of cheap olive oil to put on my head. She just poured a fortune of perfume on my feet. You know her many sins have been forgiven because she has shown great love. One who has been forgiven little loves little. I wonder what this story makes you think or feel. Do you see yourself in any one of the characters? I mean, I'll tell you what I feel every time I read the story. The dominant emotion I have is envy. Now, we, we don't know this woman's story. Everyone always asks me this when I have Bible studies on Luke. People are like, what's the background? What happened? We have no idea what this woman's story is, but there are two things that we know for sure. Um, number one, this woman has committed her culture's unforgivable sin. Every culture has at least one thing on the list, the thing that is so dirty and so appalling and so offensive that doing it puts you outside the company of decent people. Nobody's going to talk to you. Nobody's going to want to be around you. This woman has done that. The other thing we know about this woman is that she has encountered Jesus before. And whatever happened in that encounter was so big, was so life-altering. Whatever care, whatever acceptance she found in Jesus was so huge that she is willing to do absolutely anything for him. She would empty her fortune on his feet. She would rub his dirt in her hair. She would humiliate herself in front of everybody in the entire community just to bring him a moment of honor. And this is what I find I really envy. I mean, have you ever felt even just like a tiny flicker, a tiny fraction of this for somebody else? I mean, the, the, the kind of love, the kind of gratitude for somebody that just makes the world turn in col full color, that, that makes you feel like you're flying. The, the kind of love for somebody else that makes you feel invincible, that makes you fearless, that makes you feel like you could sacrifice anything and it would feel like nothing. I mean, people spend their entire lives chasing that feeling. Right? Looking for somebody, looking for some experience, looking for some drug that will give them that feeling. And this woman has found it. I feel envy because here's the thing I know about myself. I am a lot more like Simon than I am like this woman. I mean, Simon is a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a part of a kind of first century religious group and, you know, they, they kind of get a bad rap in Christian circles, but uh, I don't think that I, I know I would be a Pharisee if I were a man in the first century. I know I would be one. And it's not because I'm a mean, judgy person, because I, I really don't think I am. But the thing about the Pharisees is the Pharisees were the people in the first century who tried really hard. The Pharisees were the people who tried hard. They, they are the people who are known as the people who were always trying to do good and trying to be good and trying to do the right thing. That was their thing, doing good, being right. 
And so when I hear the statement that Jesus makes to Simon, those who have been forgiven, little love little, I think to myself, well, gosh, that sounds like a terrible system. Like, are, are you saying I'm too good to experience big love? Like, is that what Jesus is saying to Simon? Like, Simon, I'm sorry, you're just, you're just too good for this incredible experience this woman is having. I mean, I think not. And I think not for a reason. I think not because Jesus goes out of his way a lot of the time in Luke to talk to different people like Simon who are a part of this group of the Pharisees and to point out their problems to them. Let me just offer you a short list of a few of the things that Jesus notes about the Pharisees like Simon. Um, One is he says the Pharisees spend a lot of time praying, but half the time they're not even talking to God. They're thinking about how good their words sound to the rest of the people who are listening to them. Jesus says, you know, Pharisees like money, just like everybody else. They spend a lot of money on fancy robes that they can walk around having flow behind them, and they don't feel particularly responsible for the needy people they walk by on the way to get the robes. And Jesus points out that, that Pharisees like Simon, they're really rich on moral judgments. They have a lot of judgments to make about everybody else, but they don't actually help people make changes. They just recreationally judge them. I mean, Pharisees, they are religious teachers, right? That they're living, they make a living in some sense serving others. But really, most of the time, what they're doing, Jesus says, is they're competing for status and honor. They like that the role they're playing gets them a good spot in the community and a seat at all the dinner parties. And one more thing Jesus points out, and this is the real doozy of it. Jesus says, you know, you Pharisees, you all are really careful tithers. You spend a lot of time giving to the community, but you don't actually do love or justice. You give, but you don't do love or justice. Like all of these are specific things Jesus has noted about Pharisees like Simon. And in addition to all this, Jesus points out to Simon right here, you know, Simon, you haven't exactly excelled in hospitality tonight. There's no reason in the Gospel of Luke to think that Simon has less sins than this woman. The only difference between Simon and her is that her sins are the only ones society cares about. The only difference between Simon and this woman is her sins are not socially acceptable. Now, there's a certain point in reflecting on that, in reflecting on on the list of kind of indictments Jesus has made about Pharisees. When I start worrying about Simon and myself being too good, and I start worrying about us being too bad, I mean, this woman, she's living in a male-dominated culture where women had next to no options. Without a male protector, she might be an incredibly good person who is doing what she has to do just to keep herself alive. But I, however, me, me and Simon, I get it, I sometimes worry about how my prayers sound to all of you. I really like new clothes. I like praise. Sometimes I judge people purely recreationally. 
I mean, I do, I do good things, but I'm not sure if I do enough good things. I'm not really sure if the good things I do outweigh the good things that I should have done, and I didn't. And when Jesus, when he gives this kind of gut punch and calls out the Pharisees for neglecting love and justice, that's the one that really gets to me. And I promise it's going to get to you too if you think about it for a second. You know, Jesus has explicitly said in his ministry, the only thing that really matters, like the whole law, it's all about just two things. Love God, love your neighbor, that's it. Right? Jesus has been really clear on this. Um, but if you, if you hold that teaching of Jesus uh, next to, um, there, there's a point in one of the letters of the Apostle Paul, who, who knows the teachings of Jesus really well, where the Apostle Paul says this about love. You'll probably recognize this from 1 Corinthians 13, 3. Paul says, if I give away everything I have, if I hand over my own body, that's to martyrdom, to feel good about what I've done. But if I don't have love, I receive no benefit whatsoever. If I give away everything I own and I allow myself to be killed as a martyr, but I don't love, it was worth nothing. I mean, nobody actually believes that, right? Where did Paul get this crazy idea? Well, Paul got it because he knew the teachings of Jesus, and Jesus had made it clear from start to finish that what matters is not just the action, but the thing that motivates the action. Right? It's not the action itself, it's the love that motivates the action that Jesus says is the thing that counts. So if we're going to put aside for a moment just the things we do and ask the questions of motive, where is that going to leave us? I mean, I made a little list for myself this week. Well, let's start with this. How many things that I do that are good things do I do because they make me feel good about myself? Or because I like to have the feeling that my life matters? How many of the good things I do have I done because I want people to think well of me? I like having a good reputation. How many of them are because I have some hope of reciprocation? I'm hoping that people will treat me better or do something for me in return. How many things of the good things that I do do I do because I am afraid of the judgment of God? It's fear. How many things do I do because I want to relieve that uncomfortable pain of guilt? How many things do I do because I want to relieve the uncomfortable pain of empathy? How many times have I loved my enemy partly because I wanted my enemy to feel how small and petty they were behaving? I mean, if, if it's all empty, if it's not love, if it's all worthless, if it's not love, I'm starting to wonder if I have any credit in my bank at all. Am I the only one here? <laughs> but here's the key. The, the problem with Simon is not that he's too good. And the problem with Simon is not that he's too bad. And how do I know he's not too bad? Well, I know that because Jesus is constantly in his ministry seeking out Pharisees like Simon and having dinner with him. Jesus is not seeking out the Pharisees because he likes picking fights with people. Jesus seeks out the Pharisees. He has so many conversations with them because the Pharisees are the closest people to Jesus that are alive. They care about things that Jesus cares about. They are sincere seekers of God. They are so close to the kingdom of God. 
right? They are, they are the low-hanging fruit. They are the people you tip with a finger and they fall over into it. The problem with Simon and the Pharisees is not that they're too good. It's not that they're too bad. The problem is they are playing the wrong game entirely. The problem is they are trying so hard to do good, to perform their way into rightness with God. And as long as they're trying and trying and performing and performing and trying to make God happy, there are only three possible outcomes. Only three outcomes possible. Number one, they're going to fail miserably and be filled with guilt and self-loathing and shame. Option number two is they're going to succeed or they're going to at least think they succeeded and then they're going to start looking down on weaker people who haven't pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and they're going to become jerks and then becoming jerks is going to make them bad again and it's a vicious cycle, right? Or option number three, the only other option is they're going to succeed or they're going to think that they've succeeded and they are going to spend their entire life on tinder hooks wondering what will happen if at some point they get weak and fall apart. And that fear is going to be in the back of their mind forever. It's never going to go away. That today could be the day I screw it up and it's all over. Those are the three options as long as they're in performance mode. And the one thing that you'll notice about all of those options is that none of them lead to more love. Not one of those possible routes lead to more love, which Jesus has said is the thing that actually counts. It's the fuel the kingdom he's bringing runs by. So what's the alternative to that, to, to that game of trying harder, of, of performing your way into pleasing God that the Pharisees are so caught up in? Well, Jesus has a very consistent message about this. He says it again and again in all different ways. He has come looking, not for good people, not for righteous people, not for performers. Jesus has come seeking people who know they need mercy. Jesus has come seeking people who know they need mercy. I mean, why those people? Why does Jesus want sinners? Why, why does, does Jesus just like people feeling terrible about themselves? No. Jesus doesn't, he, he hasn't come seeking people who know they're sinners, people who know they need mercy because he likes people to feel bad. He's come seeking those people because he knows that the happiest, freest people on earth are people who clearly know the best and the worst of themselves. They know it and they've had it known, and they've experienced themselves as loved and accepted anyway. Jesus knows that the most alive people in the world are people who know the best and worst in themselves and have had it known by others and have found themselves loved and accepted anyway. I mean, so few people I have ever met in my life have experienced this, Christian or not. I mean, most of us spend a lot of our lives with a voice in the back of our head that says, like, I wonder what would happen if people knew the truth of me. I wonder what would happen if the people around me knew the things I did or the things that I think in my head. Or if you're religious, 
and even non-religious people, there's a bit of this lingering. I wonder what would happen if I had to stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account of what I've done. And most people, even if they're not explicitly religious, have this kind of lingering fear that God is up in heaven making a pro and con list about them personally, yes or no, like them or not, that may not come out well. It's hard to be sure. I mean, the the difference between Simon and this woman is not who's better and who's worse. The difference between Simon and the woman is that she just saw all of her junk get drug out and laid in front of Jesus, and she got to see with her own eyes what happened. All of her junk got dragged out in front of Jesus, and she watched him look through all of it. The ugliest stuff about her, the worst stuff she said and did and felt and didn't do. Jesus looked at all of it closely, and then he looked up at her and said something like this. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. In fact... I like you. I think you're amazing. We'll work on the rest of that stuff, but how about first we go and get some dinner together? It's not for nothing that Jesus' dominant reputation is as a friend of sinners. I mean, I think one of the greatest surprises of my life and my adulthood has been how much difference just one person who sees you, who sees your junk, and who accepts it and who still thinks you're worth it, can make in how you feel about not just yourself, but about your life in the world. Like, just one person, like, seeing it and accepting it and thinking you're worth it makes you feel incredibly brave, like, you, it's safe to be yourself. It's safe to live. It's safe to risk some stuff. It's safe to mess up. Because even if you do, you're going to be okay, and they're going to be there. There's no pain that feels as bad. There's no fear that feels as huge when you know that someone's in it with you. And when you feel loved, it just becomes so easy to offer love. Like, when you feel like you have received mercy from someone, it just, it doesn't even feel like a burden to offer that to somebody else, right? Like, it comes in, and then it just naturally comes out. The trick for most of us is, like, where is it going to come in from? Who's going to offer this to me? Like, how does this cycle in which love and mercy is easily given get started? This week is, is the beginning of the season of Lent. In the Christian calendar, this is the week of the, or the uh, season of the year that Christians have, for most of church history, set aside this 40-day period leading up to Easter for a time of kind of reflection on our own sin and darkness and repentance. Now, I often don't look forward to the season because it feels heavy and I spend a lot of time feeling guilty anyway. And I, I think, like, who needs more of that in Lent? Who needs another call to try harder? But here's the thing that this woman reminds me of. We don't do this act of reflecting and repenting so that we can feel heavy. We do it so that we can feel joy. We do it so that we can actually move closer toward living like this woman, living with the freedom of people who know we are okay even when we're not okay. Like all of the worst that we suspect about ourselves might be true, And we still 
are not condemned. Not now, not later when we stand before the judgment seat of God. We get to live with the joy of people who know that we have been loved, we are liked, we are walked with by someone who knows the worst of us and wants us anyway, who actually wants to be around us, not for anything we can give or provide or produce or perform, but just for us, ourselves, just for the naked truth of you. I mean, do you know that really? Do you know that you aren't condemned? That you are loved by someone who knows it all, who knows the worst thing you've said, done, thought, felt, and says, you are worth it. You are worth it. I want to be with you. I have a mission for you. I wish I knew how to give you that feeling, (laughs) that certainty. I wish I knew how to give it to me. All week I kept thinking, if I can preach this right and if I can pray this right, I can produce this feeling in myself. We can't produce this, right? This cycle only gets started by an act of God in which we, like this woman, find ourselves before Jesus and hear him say somewhere deep within us, I do not condemn you. You were loved. So I want to close today just by doing an exercise because I know this is not a, this is not a go do something about it sermon, right? This is a sermon when we need something to be done through Jesus for us. Um, so I, we're just going to kind of engage a short prayer exercise together. And I would encourage you this exercise is better done longer, slower, and privately. Um, so if this touches anything in you, consider kind of doing this at home later during Lent in a quiet space. Um, But let's just spend a few moments kind of sitting before God as I lead you through this exercise. Go ahead and close your eyes. Picture Jesus at the front door of your house. He's showing up this afternoon. You invite him in and he's gonna go through the closets. He wants to see all the stuff that's in there. The stuff you have hidden in the back and hope no one ever finds out about. He knows what you did. He knows what you felt. He knows what you said. He knows what you didn't do. He knows what you didn't give. He knows what you didn't say. Pull everything out from under the bed. Pull everything out of the closet and just lay it out in front of him. Picture him looking over it. Let him see what's there.
Now when you feel ready, ask Jesus what he would say to you about it. Picture him looking you in the eye and listen for what he has to say. What does Jesus think about all this stuff laying spread out on the floor? What does he think about you? Jesus says, I see it. I see it. It's not okay, but I also don't condemn you. Clearly, we've got stuff to work on. We've got stuff to address. But you should know I am crazy about you. I'll help you with it. You're not in it alone. I'll help you sort this through. But first, let's just get some dinner. Let's just spend some time together. All the rest will be there when it's time for us to work through it. But I just want to spend time with you. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. You are forgiven. With the authority of God, the only judge there is, I say your debt is erased.